As war continues to rage in Ukraine's east and south, another quieter and more subtle battle is playing out in the West. The struggle in North American and European capitals against so-called Ukraine fatigue. As the initial outpouring of support for Ukraine begins to fade, and as the war continues to disrupt supply chains, drive up energy costs, and fuel inflation, there's a very real risk that Western politicians and publics will waver and ultimately be reluctant to continue giving Kyiv the support it needs to defend himself. Vladimir Putin is certainly counting on this. And on the front lines in preventing Ukraine fatigue from setting in is the very large and very well-organized Ukrainian diaspora in the West, approximately two million strong in the United States, a million and a half strong in Canada, and several million strong in Europe. Our guests today are members of that Ukrainian diaspora in Canada and the United States, and they've been focused like a laser beam on trying to make sure the West keeps giving Kyiv the support it needs to win. So stick around. Hello from my makeshift home studio in Washington, D.C.'s Funky Adams Morgan neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from Washington's hip DuPont Circle neighborhood is Michael Savikiv, executive vice president and director of the Ukrainian National Information Service, vice President of the Ukrainian Congress Committee of America and President of the U.S. Holodomor Committee. Welcome to the Vertical, Michael. Hi. Well, thank you. Thank you for for having me. Thanks for coming on. And also joining us from Toronto is my old friend Marta Dichuk, an associate professor of history and political science at the University of Western Ontario and the CERES fellow at the University of Toronto. Welcome back, Marta. Thanks, Brian. It's great to be here again. We have you. So, so Ukrainian First Lady Elena Zelenska is in Washington this week to meet with President Biden and delivered a, a speech in Congress in which she said, while Russia kills, America saves, and you should know about it. We thank you for that. Michael, these are obviously very busy times for you, and you've clearly been spending a lot of time on the Hill. At my last count, the United States has given $54 billion in security and humanitarian assistance to Ukraine. Congress has passed, and the president has signed Lend-Least, which should expedite the flow of weapons and defense assistance to Ukraine. Now, I don't want to talk about that, the extent to which it has, because um, I haven't heard much about it since it's been passed. Um, and, and there is, of course, a lot of attention on the high-mobility artillery rocket system systems or HEMARS, the effect which is already being felt on the battle. But there are concerns about the sustainability of this support. This is what I want to talk to both you and Marta about it. Let's start with you, Michael. How do you assess what Ukraine's gotten thus far, and how do you view the problem of sustainability going forward, especially in an election year? You know, it's it's a most interesting um, uh, dynamic what's happening in Washington D.C. because we're discussing we're discussing um, a strategic partner of the United States, that being Ukraine. Uh, they've been strategic partners for for close to 20 years already. Um, not many people know about that. Not many American citizens know that. Um, the, the world community may not necessarily know that. So while it's not an ally per se in terms of its NATO commitments um, of of the other 30 plus member 30 members of of the NATO alliance, 
it, it does have its significance in terms of everything that is happening between the United States and Ukraine. And therefore, given the war effort and given the war, not necessarily from February 24th of 2022, but let's think about as well of February of 2014 um, and then March and April of 2014, uh, that being Crimea and, and Donbass, uh, the United States has, has provided a lot of assistance to Ukraine. And that assistance obviously is, is military assistance. We can say that. Um, um, uh, wholeheartedly that, that the Ukrainian-American community is in full support of increased military assistance to Ukraine, but that assistance as well in terms of, of, of fighting corruption in Ukraine or economic assistance, um, that too is also very, very important to stabilize the country so that it obviously doesn't fall into the purview of continued Russian disinformation that Russia, that Ukraine is a, is a, uh, 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 a failed state, economy, failed state yeah. and so forth and so on. So looking at it just from the perspective of February 24th, um, there has been, you're correct that there has been $54 billion that have been allocated and appropriated for Ukraine right now. I think the the, the most uh, interesting dynamic of the 54 billion is where it, it needs to be, those weaponries, um, uh, advanced weapons need to be delivered sooner rather than later. Ukraine has actually made uh, quite good progress in the past several weeks with the delivery of, of a lot of these um, advanced weapon uh, weaponry systems to Ukraine. And I think the sooner that this happens, the sooner that you start hitting the, the, the ammunition depots, the sooner mm -hmm. that you start hitting all the logistical lines behind the front line of contact between uh, the Ukrainian soldiers and, and, and the aggressor state, um, the more it's going to have an impact on how Russia advances in the future. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm very pleased to see that, that the Secretary of Defense has already uh, stated this week that four additional HIMAR systems are, are, are being transferred to Ukraine. So I believe we're up to 12 as of right now. That's fantastic. Ukraine has requested 60. How quickly that that will happen, whether the re the request will be fully met or not, um, that's yet to be determined. But at the same time, let's let's talk about in your opening and in your introduction, you said something about Ukraine fatigue. I, I'd like to to push back on that narrative just a little bit because I want uh, I'm I'm fatigued with the with the with the term. <laughs> <laughs> fatigue already. Um, so I, let's, I, was let's, I was provoking you, Michael. And Mike. Well, you provoked <laughs> enough. So, <laughs> so let's let's step back from even from that equation as well. This is a grand opportunity to assist a, a strategic partner to help a, 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 a democracy, that being the democracy of Ukraine to um, basically that represents all of European democracy and is standing as the front line of democracy between what I always call the, the fight between good and evil right now. So um, there, there shouldn't be Ukraine fatigue. I understand that that um, uh, the, the onset of the war, many people are paying attention to what was happening in Ukraine. Right now, um, uh, public support may be, may be waning, but I also wouldn't want um, um, Ukraine ADD to happen or attention deficit to order of Ukraine to happen, because the, we, we need to be laser focused on what's happening in Ukraine and continue this, even during this election period. And frankly speaking, it's even more important during this election period so that we know that Ukraine is on the target for, for topics of discussion and topics of, of concern for members of Congress once they get back into, um, into lame duck session or obviously for the new Congress in 2023. Right. But and just to be clear, I'm saying there is a risk of Ukraine fatigue. I don't think it's really set in yet, but I'm I'm worried about it. 
I'm I'm worried about it. Um, I'm going to go are. to Marta in a second, but Michael, I wanted to stick with you just on one thing that you didn't mention that I've been kind of advocating for for a while, and I wonder if, if this is something you've been pushing in your work on the Hill, and that is granting Ukraine major non-NATO ally status, MNNA status, which is the status the United States gives to allies like Japan or Australia who are not members of NATO but are major non-NATO allies. This opens the door to all sorts of enhanced defense cooperation. Do you, are, is this is this on your on your priority list at the moment? MNNA obviously has been um, a topic of discussion for us as a Ukrainian community um, for, for a decade plus. But I, I, I'm looking at it in terms of what you had even said, that this uh, uh, gives enhanced opportunities for the development of defensive uh, strategy vis-a-vis -vis said country. I would, have, ha I would say that right now, in, in a sense, without being formalized within a document called MNNA, major non-NATO ally status, that Ukraine already has that type of status. Mm. Everything that has been done, everything that has been given to Ukraine, um, I would say that it already um, uh, amounts to MNNA. But the, the difference between giving MNNA to a South Korea or a, uh, a Japan is that they will never will, will never be members of, of NATO, whereas Ukraine has the potential of being a member of NATO. So there's there's that particular difference right there. Um, and if anything, I think that that's the, the true goal of, of, of all Ukraine right now. Again, whether it's um, the, the political opinion polling that's been done post-war of February 23rd, 24th, 2022, that the majority of Ukrainians now want to see Ukraine as a member of NATO. Marta, I'm going to bring you in and get get the get the view of from Canada. How does how does the issue of sustainability of assistance to Ukraine look in Canada? I mean, the the Canadian diaspora there is as as active, if not more active, than than than, than in the United States. How does it look from there? That's an excellent question to be asking now, because as you know, recently Canada made an exception to the sanctions rule and yes. returned the turbine, uh, which caused quite a negative response from the organized Ukrainian-Canadian community uh, to the point that they actually started a lawsuit against mm -hmm. the government of Canada. Yes, the, world, the, world, the, the, the Ukrainian World Congress did, if I'm not mistaken, yeah. right? So um, overall, in Canada, the relationship between the government and this is federal, provincial, municipal, and Ukrainian communities has historically been very positive and very strong. And that certainly has been the case um, throughout this escalation period. But that said, um, Canada could and should be doing more. And this is something that I wrote an article about back in April. I had been invited to appear before Canadian Senate talking about what Canada should be doing. And Canada has done quite a bit, but it continues to sort of lack behind. And even on the issue of sanctions, apart from this latest scandal, Canada could be sanctioning so many more people. I go to these uh, Stand With Ukraine events organized by the Canadian Ukrainian Congress, and very often Ukraine's, um, not ambassador, but consular officer, the consul in Toronto, he's usually there, and he keeps saying, why is the Russian consul still here in Toronto? The Russian consulate does not need to be open in Toronto. He's walking around drinking coffee and living a normal life. So the issue of sanctions really could be increased. 
And the amount of aid Canada has allocated has been tremendous for Canada. But something that I'm not privy to but wonder about is how much of it has actually been delivered. Mm. It's one thing to announce aid packages and military, but I, I don't see how it's being delivered. And I appreciate that I can't be privy to all the military transfers that are happening. But the message I'm hearing from Ukraine constantly is we need more. We need more. We need more. So it seems to me that there's a little bit of a PR is good. We're standing with Ukraine. We're helping Ukraine. We're issuing four more people sanctioned, 10 more people sanctioned. But in reality, the, the, a lot more needs to be done. What do you think it is that, that, that is holding holding this back? I mean, I, I was puzzled by the turbine incidents um, because uh, Canada's never wavered in support for Ukraine. I mean, it's I mean the the influence of the Ukrainian diaspora in Canada is enormous. And that why 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 did Canada make this exception on sanctions for this this turbine? It seemed like kind of like an own goal by the Trudeau government. Well, that's an excellent question, and the only answer I have to that, it has to do with unity of the alliance, because this was on the request of Germany. Yes. This was not something that Canada initiated. And so here, I think they had to weigh, are we going to piss off Ukraine, or are we going to piss off Germany? Right, well, right. Obviously, they chose not to piss off Germany. And the media in Canada has been saying this is a terrible mistake because, as you know, it sort of Russia continued the blackmail mm -hmm. for a period after the turbine was returned. And the question of whether they will actually continue to honor their contracts is very much still being discussed. But I think the Canadian decision was based on the desire to maintain good relations with its allies. Michael, did you have any? Did you have any thoughts on that? On this this scandal surrounding the the turbine? Is this a tempest in a teapot, or is this something we should seriously be concerned about? I'm I'm most concerned about this. Uh, I'm most concerned about this because this also is a matter of what what's going on with the United States as well. The United States, in cooperation with all of its allies, let's go back to 2017. We had the CATSA legislation, the CATSA legislation, which was the mega sanctions legislation of, of, of legislation um, in the United States. Um, it, it, it was sanctions against Russia, it was sanctions against Syria, against Iran, against North Korea. And included and embedded in those Russia sanctions were also sanctions regarding uh, the various energy supply lines into Europe. And whether that was Nord Stream 2, that most of, I know in Canada, they were making sure that, that any type of sanctions go through. Um, we from the United States to try to sanction those entities of NS2, um, but now it goes to NS1. So um, I, I, I think that we too have a, a stake um, in this particular game. And we have to make sure that those sanctions, somehow those sanctions continue. And frankly speaking, um, the United States um, uh, and its allies have to come up with uh, energy diversification policy. We've yeah. spoken about that for decades upon decades upon yep. decades. And unfortunately, we're not, we're, we're, we're actually not fulfilling um, that strategy that we've come out from, from administration to administration to say that we would be doing. If right now is the opportunity, while it's a very hot summer, uh, no pun intended in terms of the weather and 
and the politics. <laughs> um, let's do that right now to make sure that as the fall and as the winter come, um, that Europe doesn't have to count on, on Russian um, gas lines or pipelines for, for um, heating its citizens. In fairness, I think there are, I mean, we are moving in that direction. I mean, the transition to, to US LNG is going to take time. Um, the infrastructure is, is is only beginning to be built. Um, there's been talk of if, if a deal could be reached with Iran, uh, getting Iranian gas into Europe would reduce the, the, the dependence on Russia. But yeah, you're right, Michael. We should have been we should have been on this a long time ago. So we weren't trying to solve this in the middle of a war um, when when Russia is able to use energy as a weapon against Europe, because that is the primary the, that, that's the primary weapon. I mean, what Putin's calculus is is that these high energy prices and inflation in the West are going to wear the West down, and we're just going to throw our hands up and say, you know. If it comes to, you know, if we, we have to pay $7 a gallon for gas to support Ukraine, well, a lot of people in the electorate are going to say uh, to hell with that. And that's what that's what Putin is frankly counting on. Um, and we're paying the price now for not for not being on top of that. I wanted to talk a bit, Michael, about Lend-Lease, um, because this was passed by Congress, signed by President Biden amidst a lot of fanfare. Um, I remember going on Ukrainian television and talking about how important this is and how this is going to you know, expedite the shipment of weapons to Ukraine because it kind of cuts the bureaucracy out. It lets the president make unilateral decisions about this. What has happened since? Because I have not heard a thing about lend since it's been passed is it is it is it being utilized I think I think that's the beauty of uh, of the bill itself uh, in terms of land lease. If we think about the historical context of land lease during World War World War II, what we had done to help supply our allies um, in in Western Europe at that time, uh, fighting against Nazi Germany, um, it expedited it expedited the delivery of said military equipment to to all of our allies um, without the, the the necessary bureaucracy. And I right. think that we're seeing that. I actually think that we're seeing that in every that is being done right now. Um, and all the, the, the $54 billion, of which however many are, are tens of billions that are for military assistance, um, I think that all that expedition um, is, is being done um, as, as quickly as possible. That, that expediting is being done as quickly as possible. Look at, um, I, I would think that other countries of the world um, are, are, are actually um, looking at Ukraine and looking at Ukraine in a bit of envy um, that, that we have strategic, we have our, our partners throughout other parts of the world as well that potentially have been requesting these same types of, of military mm -hmm. equipment. Um, and, and that's just been delivered that much faster to Ukraine than it's been delivered to other parts of the world uh, and other countries and, and our friends and allies. So I, I think that whether it's not a, a specific amount, I'm not going to put any type of uh, amount or any type of systems uh, associated with Lend-Lease, but the, the, the political connotation associated with it on how to expedite the, 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 um, the necessity of it, the, the expediency of it, I think is, is the most relevant aspect of Lend-Lease right now. Yeah, and my understanding, Michael, is that lend least it's not about the 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 money that's been allocated by Congress and the, the, the executive branch is authorized to spend. This is not. This is outside of that. I mean, the president Correct. can effectively just lend, quote unquote lend weapons to Ukraine um, at yes. his sole discretion. That's that that's my yes. understanding. Correct. So, and, and but we're maybe we're not hearing about this for a, a a reason. I don't know. But since this has been passed, I haven't heard anything about how it's working in practice. I haven't seen anything. Martin, do you have any thoughts on this? Uh, well, that reminds me of a conversation you and I had a while ago. That a lot of things that are happening that we 
we can't know about. All we can see is what's happening on the front lines. Right. The fact that the Ukrainian army is doing so much better than it was a month ago tells me a lot. Right. Whether I see the transfer or how many have, what kind of weapons and how they're getting in there, I don't see that. But I do see that they're being much more effective in stopping and repelling and even occasionally attacking the Russian forces. So that's all the evidence that I can see. Uh, yeah, we're seeing a push in the south too, um, mm -hmm. in, in, uh, toward Kherson. So that 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 that's that seems to be that the, the weapons seem to be helping there as well, and striking these munitions depot, which is which 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 is is is, is vital. Um, how much synergy is there, Michael and Marta, between the Canadian American uh, diaspora, the 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 the, the, Amer the, the, the Canadian Ukrainian diaspora? For the, the Ukrainian American diaspora, uh, Ukrainian diasporas in Europe, how much how much coordination is um, is is there in, in your efforts? Well, Michael, you take that because you're actually one of the leading figures. I just I watch from the sidelines and, and sort of participate. Uh, thanks, thanks, Marta. Yeah, um, uh, Brian, to answer your question. There, there's a lot of coordination. The coordination obviously gets done um, from from diasporas throughout the world. Um, the Ukrainian World Congress, I think, is is the prime example of that. How it tries to to get all of our respective diasporas, and you had mentioned the diaspora as well in Europe. It's not just in North America, that being Canada yeah. or the United States. Australia. Europe has. Uh, Europe has an amazing uh, uh, new amount of uh, immigrants right. that came uh, into their uh, into their fold in the last 15, 20 years, and they become extremely politically active. Um, and I think that that coordination of advocacy is extremely important for us in terms of Canada and and the United States. We, if anything, we already have our our history, our, our experience of doing this for decades upon decades since our um, respective immigrations have come to the shores of these countries. So for us, it's a little bit more established. Um, for them, it's new, um, it's exciting, and they get to understand as well that they are part of the political process. Now, European politics is a little bit different than than Canadian and or U.S. Mm -hmm. politics in terms of that. Um, but at the same time, I think it's a good mechanism for for coordination on, on all of these issues. So all of these issues imply, uh, obviously, Ukraine getting uh, membership or or considered for membership in the EU. Obviously, when it comes to anything related to NATO. Obviously, when it comes to anything related to sanctions. Um, one of the theories that that I uh, have already mentioned to uh, diasporas worldwide is something what we in the United States have done. We in the United States, um, back in the early 20 teens, had passed the law called the Magnitsky Act. And the Magnitsky Act was was solely there for for purposes of sanctioning Russian Federation uh, uh, government officials for any type of corruption, any type of of uh, degradation of human rights, and so forth and so on. That bill, that connotation, actually caught up caught on in many other legislatures uh, of the yeah. world. And in particular, that's what I'm kind of pushing with our uh, European diasporas is try to have something similar within within their respective countries. I think it already exists in in. Lithuania. It already exists in Estonia. Yeah. It already is, exists in Poland. But let's look at some of the other countries, Allah, the Frances, the, the Italy's, the Great Britain's, and so forth. Right. 
Well, this is what the this is what I wanted to drill down on actually, and why I why I raised this. Uh, Michael, you and I sat on a panel this week um, t- uh, t- talking about the, the 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 war in Ukraine, and one of the issues that came up on that panel was the how certain uh, what 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 former U.S. Defense Secretary Rumsfeld called old Europe uh, was was risking to get a, getting a little bit wobbly right now. Um, Emmanuel Macron is fond of saying we, we, we shouldn't be humiliating Putin. Um, I'd like to ask President Macron what parts of French territory he wants to give to Putin, you know, so so, so as not to humiliate him. Um, there's the perennial concerns about Germany due to its energy uh, dependence on, uh, on Russia. Italy is a perennial concern, specifically now, as the government just fell, and we really do not know what's going to replace it in those elections. What role can, can Ukrainian diasporas play in kind of moving the needle in Europe? And we don't really need to move the needle in Lithuania, Estonia, or Latvia, or Poland, or any of the Eastern European countries. They know what it's like to be occupied by the Russians. Um, but my, my concern is countries farther to the West, which, which I really do. I am very worried about how wobbly they're going to, to get. Every time Macron opens his mouth, I get nervous. Well, and, 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 and you know, to that point, Brian, I, I'd like to say that this, obviously, it's not just a, a, a kinetic war um, that we're fighting right now. It's not just a tank going up a tank or, or artillery uh, against artillery here. Basically, this is also an informational war. And unless we in the West have a cohesive and comprehensive strategy on how to fight this, this mm-hmm. the, 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 the war of misinformation that is emanating from the Kremlin, um, then we'll be behind the eight ball before we ever get in front of the eight ball. So I think when it comes to, to your particular question of old Europe, a la quote unquote, old Europe versus new Europe, um, no. No, old Europe was never occupied by by Russia. Um, New Europe obviously has been. And therefore, to bring that perspective of all of these disinformation campaigns that are emanating from the Kremlin, um, to make sure that it is fully understood and comprehended in some of those capitals of of Europe, I think it's absolutely important. When you look at at, at the, the Russian program called Ruski Mir, Mm-hmm. Uh, Ruski Mir is there to, quote unquote, protect Russian citizens outside the borders yes. of the Russian Federation. Yep. So that includes not just Russian Ukraine. citizens, not just Russian but, citizens, Russians, Russians, Russians in general, <laughs> Touche. correct, Russians in general. So that's not just in Ukraine. Ukraine has a lot of Russians. Yes, we understand that. But that could be any part of Europe. So unless that these capitals of the world don't understand that potentially what is happening right now in Ukraine uh, may affect them in the in the very near future, um, if not in the long term future, then then um, again, we're behind the eight ball as compared to being in front of it with a good and comprehensive type strategy. And it's my understanding. Go ahead, Marta. I think when we're looking at what you just called old Europe, the uh, Ukrainian communities in those countries are not very big and not very powerful. And I think the only strategy in those countries is for Ukrainians to reach out to everybody else because they don't have the capacity to lobby in the same way that we do in Canada and the US. But what I've noticed since February is that a lot of people who are not Ukrainian are actually very concerned about what's going on. So all my friends in England that I used to study with, they are all very active. They are all sharing information. They're all donating. They're all 
taking in refugees, they're all lobbying their governments, they're going to these uh, support Ukraine actions, they keep sending me pictures of, you know, the Oxfam shop has the Ukrainian flag and we had this fundraiser. So that is the way to actually influence the old European government not the Ukrainian community, but the Ukrainian community reaching out to the larger community. Right. And I just, I think that the, the two variables here are, there's a lot going on in these countries and Ukraine is one of many issues. But on the other hand, Russia is much closer to Germany right. than it is to Canada. So when I see these demonstrations in Germany in support of Ukraine, they're actually much larger than the ones we're getting here in Toronto. Because I really, I mean, I'm not a German expert, so you have to talk to Andreas Umland or someone like that. Right. It seems to me that public opinion in some of these countries is, is much more interested in what's going on in Ukraine because they are geographically that much closer. Right. Now, how that influences their political elites, that's another question. Because my example here is Britain. I mean, everybody in Ukraine loves Boris Johnson, but his own people don't like him. <laughs> so who's going to replace him and how that's potentially going to shift British policy will depend on public's support for Ukraine policy and what whoever the new leader will be. Yeah, it doesn't. What I'm hearing out of the UK, though, is it's not going to Ukraine policy is not going to change. And the support for Ukraine and the British elite was not unique to Boris Johnson. Boris Johnson was just very adept at drawing attention to his support for Ukraine. Um, so I think there's I think the they're going to be pleasantly surprised in Kiev that whoever is the success, his successor to Boris Johnson is going to be as supportive, if not maybe even more. Uh, that, that is a, that's a consensus that is not restricted to, 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 to Johnson or even the Tory party, but the pretty much the entire British elite. So I'm not worried about the UK. I'm worried well, about Italy. Italy. I'm worried yeah, about Germany. Italy is the country that, I don't know if you guys know this, I've been watching Zelensky's speeches every day and wrote an article about this. And you know his speeches to foreign audiences, whether it's parliament or senate, the only place where he did not get a full standing ovation was in Italy. Mm. Everywhere else, uh, everybody came and at the end everybody collapsed, but not in Italy. And there were some MPs who were critical and didn't even show up. So Italy is a place to watch, although in the grand scheme of things, what is the power that Italy holds? Well, they have, a veto, Italy, they have a veto power in the EU. That's, that's true, but economically, politically, it's France and Germany that and Britain. France and Germany, yeah, basically drive how Europe's right. gonna go. But Italy, I mean, I if Italy begins to wobble, that's going to give possible uh, cover for those in Germany and France who were some of whom are dying to get back to business as usual with Russia. Um, and this is, which I, to me, it's just beyond my comprehension how anybody could even be thinking about business as usual with Russia uh, under this regime, given what we are seeing. Michael, anything to add before we move into the second half where we want to talk about sanctions a bit? 
No, I'm I, I, I'm good. I think um, in terms of what Marta had said, I, I'd like to to um, back that up as well. Is is this is an opportunity we see um, changing the dynamic in Europe is not necessarily going to be just from a Ukrainian community, no matter how established or or newly established that they that they are. It has to come from society, and and the same thing actually worldwide. Um, one of the things I like about President Zelensky when in in his most recent videos is he wears a T-shirt that says "I am Ukrainian." I understand that he's wearing that because he is Ukrainian, ethnically Ukrainian, and so forth. I understand that, but he also makes this plea and this pitch for anyone, a world citizen of the world, to to say, I am Ukrainian, whether you are or not of Ukrainian origin, because what is happening in Ukraine will affect the world, is affecting the world. And I think that's the, the that's the key to all of this. All right. And that's a good, good point to segue. In a few moments, we will continue our discussion and look at the role the Ukrainian diaspora is playing in keeping pressure on the Putin regime and raising the costs of its illegal aggression against Ukraine. I'd like to remind you, you are listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from Washington's hip DuPont Circle neighborhood is Michael Savikov, Executive Vice President and Director of the Ukrainian National Information Service, Vice President of the Ukrainian Congress Committee of America, and President of the U.S. Holodomor Committee. And joining us from the lovely city of Toronto in Canada is my old friend and colleague Martin Dichok, an Associate Professor of History and Political Science at the University of Western Ontario and the CERES Fellow at the University of Toronto. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. If you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review because that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. These young faces are the faces of employees and visitors of the shopping mall in Kermitschuk. They are no more. And there is no shopping mall because the Russian rocket burned them down and killed them all. So getting sufficient defense assistance to Ukraine is only half the equation in helping Kyiv defeat Putin's aggression. The other half, of course, is raising the cost and increasing the pain for Russia. Michael, I know you are working on a number of issues in this regard, including uh, punishing sanctions evaders, uh, getting Putin and others in his chain of command indicted for war crimes, crimes against humanity and genocide, and getting Russia designated as a state sponsor of terrorism, something made all the more relevant given Putin's recent visit to Tehran. Um, what do you, what do you, what do you, how, how is this going? Are you, are you getting a receptive ear on the Hill to any of these? I mean, the the indictment for war crimes is not going to come from the U.S. Congress, of course. That's going to come from the International Criminal Court in all likelihood. But in terms of things like the state sponsor of, uh, of terrorism designation, um, uh, are you are you getting is this getting any traction on the Hill? 
Again, Brian, we're, what we're looking at here is a multifaceted approach to, to, to the war in Ukraine. So again, it's not just the kinetic aspect here, it's the multidimensional aspect of, of an information war. And obviously this is, an, a, a, this is also an economic and a political war. Uh, when it comes to the political war, we're looking at, at, at several things right now. Um, uh, designating the, the current war in Ukraine as a genocide. There are enough uh, reasons and rationale for everything that has happened in Ukraine um, for this to be designated as a um, as a, as a genocide. You know, you you go through the the, the ten stages of genocide, um, and 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 you look at every single one of them, and Putin's speech. Prior to the invasion on February 21st, uh, he basically enumerated all the reasons of genocide for Ukraine. That yeah. he's classifying the Ukrainians. He's there's symbolization uh, associated with the Ukrainians. Um, there's there's actual discrimination. He's dehumanizing uh, the Ukrainians as as a as, as a people as a nation. Um, the actual organization of the war itself, uh, the 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 extermination effect of it, as he's killing off indiscriminately um, uh, civilians uh, on a daily basis with these rocket and missile attacks. So looking at it in, in, for the political sake of, of these particular resolutions of uh, recognizing that the current war in Ukraine as a genocide, it also equates to what we're trying to do as a Ukrainian community. Um, Canada, the United States, is to bring greater awareness to the genocide of 1932-33, Stalin's um, forced famine in Ukraine uh, that, that killed off between seven to ten million people. So th this all has its its um, uh, it all has its basis. It all has its basis on how best to combat the enemy. And that's one of the things I think we we ought to understand is that we we have to define who the enemy is. And by things um, by uh, current initiatives such as recognizing the war as genocide or recognizing Russia as a state sponsor of terrorism, there are four countries that are in the State Department's watch um, for state sponsor of terror. They are Cuba, Syria, uh, Iran, and North Korea. I would surmise that put all four of those countries together, and they don't even come to an iota of terrorism compared to what the, the Russian Federation does. Um, within the war effort in Ukraine uh, just from February 24th, or throughout the world in everything that they're doing with Allah Wagner groups, um, coups, and so forth and so on. So uh, this this is something that the Ukrainian uh, community, as you had mentioned in your opening, is, is laser-focused on. We're laser-focused on these particular issues. Um, there, there, there is uh, a, a lot of support for this. Of course, obviously, it's it's a matter of putting all of this support um, onto the agenda and making sure right. that, that the congressional agenda and making sure that we get a vote as quickly as possible on these particular initiatives. And I, yeah, and I do want to return to the mechanics of that. Um, and I want to, I want to bring and uh, bring bring Marta into the discussion here as well. Um, and in terms of genocide, um, I mean, Russia is not even hiding this. This article that was published back in April in RIA Novosti, the official Russian news agency, was effectively, Professor Timothy Snyder at Yale called it a genocide handbook. It was effectively calling for the elimination of the Ukrainian nation as such. I did a program a couple of months back with three former war crimes prosecutors who basically argued the, 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 the case for to making, making a genocide case is pretty much a slam dunk here, they think. Um, they think it's going to happen. Um, it's just a question of time, but that the 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 evidence is is pretty overwhelming. Um, Marta, any thoughts on this? And is there any similar efforts afoot in Canada? Well, my thoughts are that um, 
the key thing right now is to stop the war. And designations, whether it's a genocide, whether it's not a genocide, I think those are important questions for after the war is finished. Um, the persecution of war crimes, I think that is a question that really should be more highlighted because Ukraine does have, Ukraine has actually started prosecuting individuals that they are accusing of war crimes. And I think that is a very smart strategy because that's going to get around by word of mouth. And one way to stop the war is to get Russians to stop fighting because we can't control the commands, but we can try to influence the soldiers. And when they hear that we are going to be punished for this, we're going to be war criminals, that could be one of many incentives to get them to stop fighting. So I would focus on that and helping Ukraine with these cases, because on top of everything else, their legal system is under a lot of pressure. So this is where experts in war crime tribunals, war crime cases could be helping Ukraine. I don't know if anybody has suggested that, but that would be something very constructive. Now, I would gently push back on the designations because I think I actually think these designations are important while the war is still going on. Because, and going this goes back to our discussion in the in the, in the first part of the program, um, there are those in you know that want to get back to business as usual with, with Putin. It's very very difficult to go back to business as usual with a leader who's been indicted for genocide. Right, it's going to make it really hard for 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 those that want to make the case to going back to business as usual to put pressure on Ukraine to 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 see territory in exchange for peace. It's it, it, it's to say nothing of the state sponsor of terrorism designation, which I think opens the doors to all sorts of tougher, even tougher sanctions that the United States could 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 impose. Um, but I, I don't disagree with you, Brian. Sorry to, to interrupt. Uh, it's just, let's see how long, look at how long it took to move on the MH17 case. Yeah. Okay. It took years and years and years for that to actually be properly documented and designated for what it is. So I agree with you. It is important. Um, but the state sponsor of terrorism, what does that actually entail? So well, Michael, what entailed a state sponsored terrorist, but what do, what is the how does that in effect help Ukraine? Michael, that's a question for you. <laughs> I, don't I, don't, I think it's a since good I know you since I know just, you're working on this. <laughs> I'm, I'm focused more on the practical things yeah. that can be done now. And this can be done in parallel because I've been on a bunch of panels with these international legal experts and they sit around, you know, quoting all sorts of studies of what is genocide and the threshold, blah, 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 blah. And I just think, okay, I don't want to be on this panel anymore. That's a waste of my time. I want to go and see what I can do constructively. But anyway, that's maybe... Well, Michael, what are what are the practical? Uh, I also want to walk through the kind of the mechanics of getting this done. Like, you, uh, Congress has to pass a resolution, and the president has to sign, and that's it. Is how do you designate somebody a state sponsor of terrorism in the United States? And uh, what what to Marta's question? What are the practical benefits of that for Ukraine? Yeah, two two methodologies when it comes to um, uh, how to put Russia, uh, how to claim Russia as a state sponsor of terrorism. The first is an outright designation and an outright indication coming from the the executive branch itself. Executive branch. 
whether whether it comes from from directly from the uh, Department of State, from the Secretary of State, or whether it comes from the administration itself. So that that is um, the authorities do exist for for um, adding and classifying particular countries as state sponsors. But of they care. lie exclusively in the executive branch. But there also is the, the the purview of the United States Congress to say, well, uh, Mr. President or or Mr. Secretary, we feel that you ought to look at this question more seriously. Therefore, we are proposing this resolution, and this resolution, uh, again, on a uh, a wide bipartisan uh, basis. Uh, will receive support. Um, it, it's non-binding. These resolutions are, are, are non-binding type resolutions. But what it does is, again, it sends that political signal. And it sends that political signal to, um, um, to the State Department, to the executive branch, to say that we are looking forward to your designation. Now, the, the, the practicality of, of um, having Russia recognized and designated as a state sponsor of terror so it, it it helps in terms of the the trigger labels, right? It it, it continues with arms embargo uh, against uh, against Russia, continued trade restrictions, additional sanctions, um, the suspension of foreign assistance to that country, and I'm not saying that that hasn't already happened. But again, there's the political connotation associated with with some economic um, um, uh, issues so, uh, with with uh, the designation. So, putting it, uh, combining the two of them, it would help to put Russia as a prior state within uh, within the world uh, purview. And I think that that's actually very important for uh, for Ukraine right now. Yeah, there there is, oh, sorry, I'm just wondering: like, are there any enforcement mechanisms that come with that? Because I think Brian, you they're, want they're, they're actually to avoid yeah. sanctions because there are sanctions in place now, and people actually are actually they are because if you, if you think of them. Yeah, actually, there there are because if you think of the four countries that have been listed in terms of Cuba, um, uh, Syria, Iran, and North Korea, um, it's even inter international companies that are dealing in those particular countries um, are under the, the the threat of sanctions from the United States. So there there are implications uh, um, above and beyond just saying these nice words that there's going to be an arms embargo or trade restrictions or continued sanctions. Um, the threat of sanctions. I mean, that's that one of the things that you had mentioned earlier, Brian, as well, in terms of sanction evaders. That becomes the problem anywhere. Any anytime you do sanctions, that becomes the the the, the problem is evading sanctions, or frankly speaking, even uh, implementing the sanctions. There there there's an entire rubric of things that have to go through for the designation of uh, of sanctions of said entity, person, whom, whatever that it is. Um, and I think that at least here, you're adding the political component along with the economic component, and it sends a stronger message to right. uh, to countries worldwide. And there are U.S. there are U.S. companies that are still operating in Russia right now. Um, if, if 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 Russia was designated as a state sponsor of terrorism, they would not be able to do that. They would not. Be, they would make it. They would make it very very tough. Correct. They would make it very very tough for them to continue their business in in the Russian Federation. Yeah. Yeah, um, and I, I know just just as we were speaking, uh, this just came, this headline just came across the wire: Pelosi to Blinken, label Russia as a terrorist state, or else Congress will. 
Um, and I, and there are, I mean, there is, there is a resolution in Congress. It's co-sponsored in the Senate. It's co-sponsored by Lindsey Graham, Republican of South Carolina, and Richard Blumenthal, Democrat of my home state of Connecticut, um, to 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 do just that. So, um, so this does seem to be moving. What's what's your expectation, Michael? This is going to move through. Is good, Congress is going to put the pressure on the White House to do this, or, or I, I I am fully confident that Congress will do this um, uh, based upon. The reaction and um, the remarks of two particular uh, leaders within Congress. Speaker Pelosi went to Ukraine at the end of April, uh, had met with President Zelensky and, and his team, uh, took over a delegation, I should say, and in during their discussions had mentioned that she also wants to designate Russia as a state sponsor of terrorism. A week later, uh, Minority Leader uh, Mitch McConnell also took a delegation to Kiev, met with President uh, Zelensky and, and members of his administration and also reiterated the same thing that he wishes to see, uh, Russia designated as a state sponsor of terrorism. So if you have two of the leading uh, political uh, uh, figures within Congress from both parties saying the same thing, I would hope that this obviously sets yeah. the precedent for moving forward well, yes. in a very timely fashion before Congress goes home for the August recess. Yeah, anything Pelosi and McConnell uh, agree on, uh, as you know, as a Washingtonian like me, that is a very rare, very rare thing indeed. <laughs> and if those two agree on something, it's probably going to happen. You um, know, they, it's they're both thing. very you adept at getting getting votes. Um, and then that would, but that would not require the administration. It's just as it's a recommendation, but the political pressure would be enormous on the on the administration to, to do this. Do you have any idea why the administration is reluctant on this? They have they they've been pretty hawkish on Russia throughout this. Well, I, I think any any administration is the same thing I could say for for earmarking assistance to said country. Um, uh, the administration wants to hold it for their own discretionary purposes as to how to distribute uh, said appropriated funds or so forth. And I have a feeling it's the same thing here that they feel that there are other opportunities of quote unquote any types of continued dialogue negotiations with uh, with officials in Moscow um, on a whole host of issues, not necessarily Ukraine related, but a whole host of other issues, and and I think that they're trying to weigh all of this. And and I must say the same thing as, as for genocide as well. It was very difficult um, uh, to to get any type of reaction from any State Department, from any administration, as to the designation of the whole of 1932-33 right. as genocide. So if we're going down this path already of recognizing this war as a genocide, I would also add to that um, uh, and and give some more paperwork to the legal right. counsel at State Department. To also recognize Holodomor as as a genocide, right? And there's also there are kind of some fissures in the administration. I mean, the State Department is much more hawkish on this than the NSC is at the moment, and and so I think I, you, you might you might have some 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 inter inter administration disagreements. I do want to talk about sanctions evasion, but I want to give Marta an opportunity to jump back in on this discussion of state sponsored terrorism. Thank you. I was just checking because I'm not a specialist on Canada. I don't know that we have that. I mean, no. we have counterterrorism measures, and we designate individuals and groups as terrorist organization or terrorists. But I don't know that we have that same sort of thing in in our country. We could designate the Wagner Group, and you can designate the Russian Armed Forces. <laughs> well, you would have the same effect, I would imagine. What effect does it have in Canada if you if a group is designated a terrorist group? Does that does that open up any any doors there? I mean, to 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 concrete action. Well, it restricts activities. 
Mm -hmm. And most of the groups that have been recently labeled, they can't have bank accounts, they can't operate in Canada, they don't have legal status. If they're individuals, they're often asked to leave the country. Uh -huh. So it's basically shutting down any activity within Inside, Canada. within Canada, right? Within Canada, right. where the U.S. designation has kind of extraterritorial regions, right. as so most things that's a huge difference. Off, off, often do. Um, before Brian, if I, could, if I could, if I could jump in on that, sorry, one quick second. This, this to to my example earlier of Magnitsky. This actually is an example that could be propagated uh, and promulgated in other countries as well. Is this this idea of a state sponsor of terror for legislatures and or governments of the world? to recognize other countries as state sponsors of terrorism. I think that that's a, a unique brand to the United States, but this hopefully enough is something that can be shopped around to, to other parts of the world. Right, well. the, the, the Magnitsky Act was once a unique brand to the United States, but we no longer own that brand. It. It's, kind, right. it's, kind of, it's kind of like Xerox or something like that. <laughs> I mean, in the remaining time, it I becomes a want, franchise. It becomes a franchise, exactly. But in uh, Canada, sorry to jump in, it's for corrupt individuals. Mm. Again, it's not blanket. It's targeting corrupt foreign officials act. Right. Okay. Um, I did want it in the remaining time. We're bumping up against the end, but I wanted to talk about sanctions evasion. So I know, Michael, this is something that concerns you a lot. It's come up on the periphery of different different topics in this discussion. Um, what are what are you trying to get us to do um, in terms of cracking down on sanctions evasion? Well, sanctions evasion, um, uh, first of all, it starts with the actual sanctions themselves. They have to be very tight. They have to be very defined. Um, is, is it just about an individual within within the Kremlin operative? Does it also um, uh, filter through to, to their family members and so forth and so on? So I think that that's number one when it comes to sanctions evasion. Sanction evasion when it comes to number two, when it comes to businesses and or entities. Um, we all know that, that Russia is is infamous for their their shelter companies so right. they have so many shell and shell and shell companies um, that's where the evasion comes from yes. and I think we ought to be very mindful of where where providing sanctions uh, implementing sanctions against entity a but entity a has 10 shells uh, associated with it with it as well and that's the case I think where we're at right now is the initial sanctions I think have done a great job um, hit the hit the the, the, the prime people and prime entities, whether it's it's businesses or even sectors within uh, uh, the Russian Federation. But at the same time, it's making sure that you have all the various, as, as the Russian nesting dolls, you have all those other yep. nests uh, below that are being sanctioned. Yeah, and this is a problem of beneficial ownership. This is an issue we've discussed in this that. podcast with Paul Massaro from the U.S. Helsinki Commission, who's really focused on that issue. Um, and this is something we should have been doing even before uh, the war in Ukraine. Russia set, set up uh, dozens, if not hundreds, of shell companies across Europe, um, across Western Europe. Um, there are so many. I, I was looking into this company called Vemex uh, a, a while back in, in, in the Czech Republic. It was a top of a shell company on top of a shell company that led right back to Gazprom. Um, and there's sure. lots of these. There's lots of these out there. There's been a lot of talk right now about cutouts like uh, Bidzina Ivanishvili. Uh, the 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 oligarch who effectively rules Georgia um, and bankrolls the, the the ruling party is is seen widely seen as a Kremlin cutout um, who is who a lot of people suspect may be assisting in evading sanctions a lot of a lot of people in the Georgian opposition believe this Marta any thoughts on the sanctions 
customs evasion problem, yeah. especially given the, 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 the scandal that just erupted in Canada. Yeah, no, no. I mean, this is precisely the same issue in Canada of how do you identify and there is some public attention and government statements uh, issued to be careful to see who you're working with, check very carefully guidelines on how to watch for sanctions, evasions, familiarize yourself with regulations, all this sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But it seems to me that the real issue is not all companies want to follow the rules. They don't all yep. want to follow the sanctions. And I think this is where uh, public pressure is really important, where some companies that continue to trade with Russia or evade the sanctions, they need to be pointed to and shamed and saying, you know, why are you still doing this when they are guilty of such and such? And I think that has been a, a relatively successful strategy. And I think this is where information war and sanctions can work together. Because let's face it, there will always be people who don't care. And all right. they care about is their profits. And these sanctions are interfering with their profits. So they're going to evade them or disregard them. And the only way to stop them is through government enforcement plus public shaming. Public shaming. Any thoughts on that, Michael? Agreed. Agreed completely. And and another component to this as well <clears throat> that we're working on in the States is this new program called Freeze and Seize. So you freeze the assets of these particular oligarchs or these particular entities. Um, that's fine. But then there's a legal process in terms of actually seizing those components and turning it over into something that that's that's that, that that's that's tangible in terms of what we can do with with said funds. Um, there are legal implications associated with all this. And unfortunately, we need to 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 kind of um, get the legal system uh, on board and making sure that a lot of this goes through in a faster and more timely manner, because this could take uh, years yeah. upon decades um, for the freezing and the seizing. Yeah, no, this is, and this is something that's been concerning me for a while. We've really deregulated our economies to the point where there, where this, this is all, this is all possible. And now we need to kind of go back to a regime where, you know, you you know who the beneficial owner of of a company or or even a piece of property is. Um, but because like Russian money is being laundered through the bricks and mortar, um, of buildings in you know in in, in London, in Miami, in New York, and 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 and, and elsewhere. Um, this has been a problem. Like I said, long before the war in Ukraine, um, I'm hoping that this really brings it into sharp relief, and we see we see the legislative changes uh, to, to 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 deal with it. Um, we're up against the end. If if I don't wrap this up, my my production team is going to um, sanction me. I think. <laughs> ask you both for your last remarks before we call it a week. Uh, I think that there's a lot of room for creativity in all of this. And as we were talking about sanctions and evasion and freezing and seizing, I remember this wonderful uh, event that happened in London where a group of activists, they seized a mansion of one of the Russian oligarchs and they occupied it. And I don't know how that story ended, but um, that was an example of what you were just talking about because they were literally squatting. They seized the property and they had these signs saying oligarch, whatever his name was, and the police weren't supposed to remove some because they were technically breaking the law. And I don't know how that story ended, 
But I think those sorts of actions really draw public attention right. to the issues in ways that really can motivate people to think about what's going on and possibly to act and get their governments to act. Right. Very quickly, Brian, very quickly, Brian, um, as I mentioned earlier, I, I think it's this narrative. We have to be laser focused on this narrative of defining who the enemy is, producing a strategy to to realize and to achieve that final goal. Uh, that final goal is to support Ukraine. And frankly speaking, to support Ukraine also means for, for aiming for a Russian defeat, because otherwise yeah. um, the rest of the world is going to feel the pains of this war uh, on their own territories in the future. Yeah, no, and I would, I would, I'm glad you made that point of you, you know helping Ukraine to win because I don't think the war ending isn't enough for me. The war has to no. end in a Russian defeat. Uh, right. I don't want this to end in another yet another frozen conflict that gives Russia time to regroup and attack again. Um, this is something that that really, which is quite frankly something Russia might be aiming for now to now lock in their 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 territorial gains with a ceasefire and then regroup to to fight another day. Um, that day could be sooner or 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 later. So I'm I this it's um stopping the war isn't enough. Uh, Ukraine has to win and win decisively. I disagree with uh, President Macron. I think we do need to humiliate Putin. I think it's the only way that this we're going to have to that we can prevent this from happening again. On that note, we shall wrap it up. That's all we have time for today. I would like to remind you, you have been listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlanta Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlanta Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from Washington's hip DuPont Circle neighborhood has been Michael Savikov, Executive Vice President and Director of the Ukrainian National Information Service, Vice President of the Ukrainian Congress Committee of America, and President of the U.S. Holodomor Committee. And joining us from the lovely city of Toronto is my old friend Marta Dechok, an Associate Professor of History and Political Science at the University of Western Ontario and the CERES Fellow at the University of Toronto. Thank you both for an enlightening discussion. Thanks, Brian. Thanks. Thank and you, Brian. Also, also like to thank our awesome production team in Arlington, Texas. Lance Ligas is in the virtual control room. He keeps all the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled in working order throughout our discussion. And Dylan Holberg handles our all-important post-production duties, cleaning up my many, many messes and making us all sound a whole lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. If you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review because that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Join us again next week. And until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix that's been prepared by our production team.